It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Steve and Jerry with you. Hey, Jerry, what's going on? Oh, not much, Steve. How are you? Very good. I'm very excited. We have another second time guest today on the Rush Fan Cast. I know. We're going to have to give it like a twofer. Is that a name? Can we give him like a little name? Twofers? Pretty soon it'll be like Saturday Night Live. Right. Being on the podcast five times, you get an award. That's what I was thinking of. Really? Let's wait till we get somebody on five times first, and then we'll then we'll think about what we're going to do. Okay. You can find us on Twitter, at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are the RushCast. Email Jerry, the RushCast at gmail.com. The base intro, as always, Lex gives us limelight. And Jerry gives us an email. What do you got? Oh, I have a good email, Steve. This is from Edward. He's living in the UK. And he says, firstly, thanks so much for the podcast. This may seem strange to say, but I didn't come aboard as a particularly big Rush fan. Wow, that is strange. I don't know why anybody would listen to this if they weren't a big Rush fan. Yeah, really, exactly. (laughs) Why are you listening? However, your enthusiasm, insight, and open-hearted rapport have kept me listening and finding new approaches to the group's music. It's nice to hear losing it highlighted in the final part of your signals analysis. I don't think it had struck me how human and compassionate those lyrics were until you broke it down. But on to Countdown. Oh, Countdown. Yeah, I kind of understand both interpretations here. I agree with you, Jerry. Especially for Neil, the lyrics are fairly rote and one-dimensional. But I also think Steve may be onto something when he suggests that it may be cliche for a reason. It would seem from Neil's own account that it was the excitement of the launch that he wanted to capture more than anything. Thus, you could argue that a childlike appraisal of the event was actually apt. Even with his evident scientific curiosity and knowledge, he seemed to have been simply awed by the achievement, an overwhelming confluence of intellect, coordination, and planning culminated in what, in that moment, may just as well have been a magic show. Wow. Probably a rare and special experience for someone with his thirst for understanding. There may not appear to be multiple levels of meaning in the song, but I feel the anxious thrill of the launch is certainly conveyed, though the Cutting like a knife line, I grant you, is pretty vacant. Thank you for all your hard work on the show. Long may you cast. All the best from the UK in these strange times. Wow. That was Edward. Edward, thanks so much for that email. I'm just so happy that we're creating new big Rush fans. I mean, he, he obviously liked Rush a little bit because he listened to the podcast, but now he's a big fan. Yeah. I just love the, the, the emails I get, Steve. They're so well written. People just have such, they have eloquence when they speak about Rush and how much they like Rush. Rush fans are smart. They are. And another smart Rush fan is our next guest, Jer. His latest book is Limelight, Rush in the 80s, out Tuesday, October 13th. He's the author of a plethora of books on hard rock, heavy metal, prog rock, and of course, Rush, Martin Popoff. Welcome back to the Rush Fancast. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Very cool. Let's do this. <laughs> we really appreciate it. So why don't we pick up where we left off, Martin, in the 70s? What's the mindset of Rush as they head into the decade of the 80s? Where is their headspace? Well, I mean, the 80s was a dramatic change for everybody. I remember at the time everybody talked about the concept of the 80s, right? There's no MTV yet. We don't know that's happening yet. But Rush is uh, Rush is subtly changing, I suppose. I mean, I don't know if there are marked market changes between permanent waves uh, moving into moving pictures. Obviously, there's the um, 
you know, there's the, there's the break point, how permanent waves was almost right there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the narrative that, that we all know from the movie and whatnot and, and how these narratives sink in with the rush guys themselves. I mean, they probably convinced themselves of these things. Right. But, um, you know, the idea of moving towards the shorter songs. So you get, you get in moving pictures. I mean, you get an album that is not, you know, crazily crazily different uh from permanent waves but you do get uh you know i suppose you get an improvement in the songwriting maybe um you know validated by how big that record became for them um you also get an increased use of keyboards so i suppose that's one of the big things that uh that is happening keyboard synthesizers um you get a little bit of that in in tom sawyer and and some of the stuff on the second side you obviously get a get a long song on the second side as well you know they're they're uh they're up at uh list studio doing this so it's a it's a very canadian experience all around right um you got the you know you got the 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 parliament building or is it, it it's actually the um the old city hall building, right? I, I keep I keep forgetting. Uh, people keep comparing the two. Maybe, maybe it is the Parliament buildings. Anyway, so it's it's Toronto, right? It's their hometown on the cover. Very clever cover. Very classy cover with the black and the red. You know, they're looking like a very regal and royal band, like like this this establishment situation with this beautiful, rich looking uh, album cover. And uh, and the record, obviously, uh, as they say, the rest is history. I mean, God, I mean, all four songs on side one are massive hits, right? Uh, in in terms of rush rushdom, and then and then you've got the dark side of the moon. You know, the the other side that uh, that is all not hits. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly rush essentially breaks in 1980. I guess that's the, that's the shortest answer. Now, do you think, what was it about moving pictures that made it such a huge hit? Cause you know, rush fans, the incremental changes, we can see, you know, those incremental changes, but for the non rush fan at the time, that must've been like, who are these guys? And like, what are they tapping into? What's the, what's like the zeitgeist of moving pictures? It's interesting if you think about it, putting aside if there is a zeitgeist, um, what you actually get is it's kind of interesting when Neil talks about how Tom Sawyer is hard to play. So what you get in Tom Sawyer as this as the key marquee lead single is a song that's slow but played quickly by some of the players in the band, right? So you, you get this complicated song, but it, but yet it's still, you know, there's a long space between the bass drum whack and the snare drum whack and the bass drum whack and the snare drum whack. It's a slow song, right? And it's got really cool technology. Um, so you get an interesting, catchy song in Tom Sawyer that's also challenging. You get a very recognizable quick and uh, and memorable instrumental in yyz you get a uh, a really good kind of poppy with a deep lyric song in limelight so that's a, a, a beloved and lovable song uh red barquette is a great story now in terms of a zeitgeist i don't think there is a zeitgeist really because you you could look at uh, you could look at the history and the long stream of progressive rock and where is progressive rock Number one is Rush, even progressive rock. I mean, I, I always argue that they invented progressive metal, but, you know, at this point, punk has burned itself out. Punk has turned to skinny, tie, new wave. There's really nothing. I mean, it's almost like 1980 is a clean slate because we're coming from a recessionary year in 1979, right, where, you know, the record industry would have been a complete disaster if it wasn't for In Through the Outdoor, The Wall, and Eagles in the Long Run, right? 
but the prog bands are on kind of like this uh, this weird yes is on a, in a weird place because uh, the lead singer has just left and they make this excellent drama album. Um, but they're going to go a little more modern. Genesis is actually getting really sort of famous at this time. Um, Kansas, I suppose, is past doing well and gone. They're on their way down again. Um, Styx is also in that same place. Styx is, is kind of their, their triple album in a row, three albums in a row that are triple has gone. So uh, in terms of a zeitgeist for this kind of music, for the prog music, we're in a holding pattern. We're about to see a change. For heavy metal, we're also in a place where all the North American hard rock bands have more or less stumbled We've got a new wave of British heavy metal, which is now just kicking off. So there's going to be this big British thing happening. So again, to net it down and give you the short answer, I don't think there is a zeitgeist. I think I think we're we're kind of in a transitory period for everything. So the '80s, Martin, this was the period where Rush was literally thrust into the limelight, and as we all know, this was not the place Neil was most comfortable. How did this change the band? Just just their sudden fame when Moving Pictures came out. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I suppose subtly we are moving into, uh, you know, regularly being able to sell out all the hockey barns, not just the 6,000 and 7,000 seaters in the B cities. We're now going to be selling out regularly the 17s and 18s and the NHL and the NBA auditoriums, right? So, so they're getting big. This is going to be their first really big album. It's been basically a, a nice gradual rise. You know, as they say in the 70s, we were, you know, we were allowed to experiment and we didn't lose our record deals immediately and all that stuff. Right. So, so Rush has been had this nice sort of regular rise throughout all these records. And we know famously Neil doesn't like to hear how great he is and hear compliments. He doesn't know how to answer that question. Right. Getty and Alex seem OK with it. Uh, you know, I remember the part from from the movie and, and I suppose this is somewhat uh, you know, explored in the limelight book that Neil kind of articulates that we are now the it band. Now, obviously, they weren't the only it band. There were all kinds of bands doing great. You know, forget our own little world of progressive metal or progressive rock or heavy metal. There were all sorts of bands, you know, on different career trajectories. But yeah, this is this is Rush doing, you know, really well, moving up the ladder. They've got some hit singles and they're essentially, you know, a solid, dependable headliner in all of those hockey arenas at this point. And then after moving pictures is signals, which to me couldn't be any more different than moving pictures, sonically songs, song structure. So they're deciding at some point they changed from the seventies to the eighties and said, let's experiment with shorter songs. And then they were like, let's bring in some synthesizers. (laughs) What's the impetus there? for the heavy use of synthesizers at that time. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I just rattled off a uh, an emergency episode of my podcast, History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff and Eddie Van Halen, who died on this day as, we, as we're talking here, October 6th, 2020. And one of the great things about Eddie was creative fearlessness and the use of keyboards, right? Right. And, and Geddy Lee is also a, a similar sort of figure in that he's, he's one of the greatest lauded bass players in the world. And here he is uh, bringing in a lot of keyboards. 
So yeah, it's it's really cool to see this element of rush and creative fearlessness coming in and fearlessness in the face of having your biggest hit album of all time. So that's very commendable. Um, and they're bringing in um, some of that, you know, inspiration from Stuart Copeland and the police and New World, New World Man and and uh, and things like that. Subdivisions is the ultimate um, link song between Led Zeppelin's In Through the Outdoor and Van Halen's Jump in terms of, uh, you know, being, you know, it was shocking when that song came out and it's more or less based on a synthesizer riff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was a very shocking thing to do. And then Eddie, like I say, Eddie Van Halen kind of did the same thing again when Jump came out yeah. and, and Jump was an advanced single. I'm not, I can't remember if Subdivisions was an advanced single or not. Do you guys remember? Did it come out before the album or or was it at the time of the album? I'm not sure. I I don't think it was an advance, but I could be wrong. Probably wrong. I'm not going to commit either way because someone will email us and tell us. Yeah. But it was shocking, right? I remember the era of the advanced singles. I mean, I remember yeah. I remember a point of entry advanced single and I definitely remember Rock You Like a Hurricane being an advanced single, right? There was there was a lot of that kind of going on. It was really exciting. Yeah, especially when they're really, really good songs and you get so pumped up for the album. And then you get kicked off when the album comes out. <laughs> Rocky Like a Hurricane was probably the best song off of uh, Love at First Sting, right? That's true. Yeah. And and, uh, and Jesus Christ Pose from Soundgarden. That one that one blew me away. I mean, oh, yeah. Crazy advanced single, right? Closing Time from Leonard Cohen. Best song on that album, right? But anyway, so... Um, so yeah, Signals and Signals is probably my favorite Rush album. I mean, I often cite that as my favorite, possibly aligned with the Hemispheres. But I remember fond memories. I was in second year university, and uh, I rented a uh, secondary loft space as a rehearsal space. I had the big Neil Peart drum set, and I, you know, I learned all those songs. That was, you know, I would go, I would go after school. You know, the the light is waning. Greatest small town in the world, Nelson, BC. So this cool cat, Jim, mutual friend had this attic loft loft and I had my drums in there and I would go in there. You know, I also had some music courses in my second year of uh, university and I had a band there and we, you know, it was pretty cool and a cool teacher who was an ex drummer from the Paul Butterfield blues band. But I would basically go there and learn all those songs off of signals and, and just that that's my, that's my personal bonding with that record. And uh, I just love the production on that record. I thought it was a perfect melding of the synthesizers uh, with uh, the guitars, uh, very analog sound. They would never, ever, ever have that sound ever again. I, I thought it was, it was the last time I loved, you know, super loved a rush production. Yeah. You mentioned in the book that, you prefer the production of signals over moving pictures. Yeah. That's got to be a controversial statement, don't you think? I suppose so. And, and I, I think moving pictures, uh, again, my memory is, uh, but wasn't that lauded as the first digital production of all time or one of the early digital productions? It is, it is a digital production, right? Yeah, it's an early one. So, um, you know, and it doesn't mean a lot to me. I mean, I, I'm certainly a huge student of production. I know notice and know a lot about production but to me i don't think it 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 gave it any you know crazy amazing amazing thing i i actually prefer the production of hemispheres for example um maybe not permanent waves maybe not farewell definitely not farewell to kings definitely not progressive steel probably not 2112 but i mean i i think hemisphere sounds better than moving pictures and i love yeah i do love signals i just think it's uh I always uh, always co- uh, compare it to the album cover. It's got that same 
the production is the same color as that album. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. I I do that too. Albums sometimes sound like they're covers. Yeah. <laughs> How difficult was the transition, Martin, for Alex to the keyboards? You mentioned in the book was like the devil on his shoulder telling him he was out of a job. How hard was this for him? Yeah, it's it's funny, you know. I mean, Alex, because because I think back to the '70s stuff as well, and um, and this unfortunate situation that Getty is lauded as this great bass player, and Neil is lauded as this great drummer, and Alex is just kind of left in the lurch, you know, a little bit like the Iron Maiden guitarist, but for a different reason because there's three of them, and you don't know yeah. which one's the great guitarist, right? So um, the same sort of thing where. Um, you've got a busy bass player and a busy drummer and you've got these lyrics that are distracting you that are amazing. And these, and these note dance songs and Alex has always, I mean, it's really not a lot different than the seventies. I don't think where Alex has to find his place in there and do certain things. And Alex, you know, even though he, he like stumbled upon it at times, he was never the big riff guy. He's good at a lot of different things, but he's not known for a certain thing. And he also has, this thing that's a little bit like Joe Perry in that he likes to do things that are different and non-obvious for different and non-obvious sake. So his soloing, he does a lot of strange, interesting things that, again, go a lot of different places and don't add up to a style. Like, I don't think any of us really, you know, would peg a style on him. You know, again, to bring back Eddie Van Halen, who died today, he is probably the most distinctive guitarist, more or less, that I can think of in terms of the style, um, with all that tapping and the brown sound and all that kind of thing. Alex, not so much. And I still think there's a lot of guitar all over Signals, and it does meld really well with the, the synthesizers, and that's why I love it so much. I, I think um, it's, almost like, it's almost like there's a little bit of that uh, nice, rich meld between... A, a John Lord and a Richie Blackmore and a Mick Box and a Ken Hensley that you get between them, although we're not talking Hammond through a rotating Leslie or anything. We're talking synths, but I think Alex and Getty on those, on those nascent synths has that same sort of rich rhythm guitar uh, aspect of the synthesizers that you get out of a John Lord or a Don Airy or a Ken Hensley. So I think that's why it works together on Signals. Yeah, I think that when, if you listen to Alex, try to listen to him closely on those albums, he definitely finds the pockets where he can do something interesting. It's riffing, and then there's soloing, and then there's licks between the two. Yeah. And soloing is licks, and there's a lot of licks. You know, riffs can be chordal riffs, or they could be, uh, you know, uh, more note dance version of riffs, which is more like, you know, single note riffs. And he does a lot of that as well. So... So yeah, I, th I think you hear a lot of Alex, and and it's just it's just a finely tuned, perfect four man band machine uh, at that point, right? That's right. Yeah, the keyboards, the bass, the guitar, and the drums. You know, so at the end of Signals, obviously they parted ways with Terry Brown. Do you think that was inevitable that they would part ways? Do you think there was something in their history where they were going to? Because uh, Getty says at one point they just want to learn something new from someone so do you think they had learned everything they could from terry yeah that's that's pretty interesting i mean obviously uh in their in their lives outside of music they've proven themselves to be renaissance men who are who have a thirst for knowledge and are out there learning new things all the time 
collecting hobbies and art and wine and books and all that kind of stuff, right? Neil with his uh, various uh, forms of mobility. Um, but, uh, and, and obviously in terms of stylistically, they're having a, uh, a you know, slightly more rapid than the, than the usual band evolution in what they're doing. Um, it will get even more radical soon. But um, yeah, I suppose uh, this is when it popped into their heads that another area that they could bring change upon themselves is to get a new producer. You know, they've had the same guy. I mean, and, and it's funny. I mean, Terry, I mean, there seemed to be some bitterness early on. And, and then the fact of the matter is, is that if you looked at Terry from a production school point of view, he was changing just as fast as the band was changing all along as well. He was, he was adapting all this stuff, but obviously they seem to have a little bit of a butting of heads of, uh, of Terry wanting to keep Rush maybe a little closer to what they were than Rush wanting to move on uh, to new things. And, you know, frankly, probably all these years later, given that certain things that certain people do, like bands like Rush and producers like Mutt Lang, Given that there are a lot of pitfalls you can fall into in the 80s, years and years and years later, Terry might have been right. We might have had more timeless music that doesn't sound dated. Had Terry got his way, had the band not changed so much over time. But they're on a creative path. They're artists, right? They, uh, they want to do artistic things. They want to create. They want to be brave. They want to have that white knuckle thing that an, that an Eddie Van Halen has. And, uh, you know, they want to move forward. So do you think it's possible that they were even too close to Terry, that they were almost finishing his sentences? They knew what he was going to say before he said it. That was part of the deal? I think so. And, and I, I suppose, you know, as, as we've sort of reiterated, I mean, they were, they were getting bored. And I, I guess they were finding new ways to be brave, new ways to be creative. And, uh, and this was just another new wave that they had never really thought of before. It's like, Hey, let's change this guy over here. Let's get rid of him. Right. You know, fortunately they never said, Hey, let's change this drummer. Yeah, really? I was going to say they can't change anybody else. Yeah. But then the next album didn't go so well for them. Right. Cause their original producer that they wanted, Steve Lillywhite backed out at the last minute. Yeah, and they were very ticked off at that um, because he basically uh, stood them up, you know. And who knows where they would have gone? Wow, I mean, it's 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 amazing to think about where they would have gone, right? It is, it but, absolutely but, is. But they have gone murky and U two and kind of analog again and more post punk than what they did because what they did was, I suppose, I, I don't even want to call it a bridge album to Power Windows, but I mean, it's it's almost like. Um, I mean, at the production end, number one, it's a little harsh and mid-rangey. It's a little cold. Again, it's like the album cover, right? It just just like you said, Jerry, right? You know, it's just like, the, it sounds like the album cover. You know, it sounds like frosticles hanging off your nose, <laughs> right? So it has that and it's kind of a dark album lyrically and it's, and it's a little dense musically. It's not, it's certainly not as warm as Signals is, but um you know, uh, yeah, I mean, the songs are a little more radical, I suppose. Um, boy, I don't know how to describe it. I just I just know that over time, I've grown to have more of an appreciation for Grace Under Pressure. I mean, I do, I do quite like it a lot. I can play individual songs and go, you know, that, that kind of wrinkles my nose. It kind of smells funny, you know, what they're doing on this one. But, um, but generally speaking, as a, as a cohesive work of art, um, I greatly, greatly appreciate it, you know, but at the time, I mean, I was, I was still, 
I was, I was probably getting a little worried and, and not as on board because I, I do not like the keyboards as much. And I was, I was, I was still as much as a metalhead as I was since 1973 when I was 10 years old and, and craving all things metal. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do remember at the time I was less of a fan of it at the time than I am now. Where do you think Rush fit in at this time? It's 1984, 80s music. Are they new wave? Are they heavy metal? They're somewhere in between there, right? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And to think about them at that time, because they're fitting in certainly with MTV because they're making videos and those videos are getting played and they're pretty decent videos. You know, some look pretty cheesy, but I mean, they obviously seem to work on them pretty hard for the era using the technology of the era, right? So they're that. <clears throat> the other thing that's interesting about that time from a prog point of view is that you've got Yes doing really well with a very modern sound. You've got Genesis doing well with a modern sound. You've got Asia doing well with not a modern sound, but they're a super group and they're like kind of rejuvenating prog that way. You've got Marillion making some waves. So you've got Prague living on. You've got kind of a, a post-punk world. You know, you've got a world that Rush refused to participate in. They went a whole different route, but you've got the rise of hair metal. Mm -hmm. This is the, you know, Van Halen through Motley Crue through Quiet Riot going six times platinum with their debut, well, not their debut album, but their, their major label coming out party. You've got Dawkin and Twisted Sister and Rat. ZZ Top's blown up big time. There's a trio for you. Um, but basically, where do they fit? I, I suppose, um, I've never really thought about this, but I suppose it's a cacophony of colors and sounds caused by MTV. And Rush is just one of those people in the cacophony. I suppose they're a little bit like, they're most like, I would say, yes, at this time. And still doing pretty well. And But they're most like, yes, at this time in terms of the philosophy of updating their prog sound with keyboards. I think that's the most important thing. And they're moving away from any comparisons to heavy metal tropes that we might have. Yeah, they definitely, I guess they, they have a history of zigging while other people zag, right? Yeah. They do what they want to do where they feel like they need to go. So when we get to Power Windows, is that also more of a reaction against what's happening as opposed to uh, pushing in a certain direction, do you think? I don't know. I mean, I remember when that came out, I was even increasingly annoyed at Rush and not really into it. <laughs> but a portion of me, like 20, 30% of me, was one of those guys that said, stay current, be enthusiastic about current things, be enthusiastic about current technologies, appreciate that they're doing this, appreciate that they sound cutting edge and youthful at the same time and doing these things. But I, I do recall there's, there's almost like, you know, that idea of a glass ceiling of uh, women's salaries and women's women rising in, uh, you know, uh, corporate hierarchies. Mm -hmm. To me, there's a glass ceiling with that album in terms of being able to enjoy it too much because of just the idea that, Nothing on this is going to sound like hard rock or heavy metal because the production has set it up such a way that Alex has been neutered and, and he will be this chimey mid rangey, just part of this little dialogue chirping in like a bird trapped in a cage. 
uh, amongst what's going on, which is really a preoccupation with the very latest synthesizers and keyboard sounds. So, so, you know, I always have this grappling with, um, like Jerry, you mentioned like the um, rush zigging while other people zag, but at the same time, they could be the trendiest band on earth. They could be very trendy, right? And and this whole this whole period is where they're being incredibly trendy. They're really going for, you know, because they're they have this thirst for knowledge and thirst for new experiences and creativity. They're basically looking at the very latest cutting edge things and saying, "Yeah, I'll have some of that." Right. So, um, so yeah, I'm not a big fan, not a big fan of power windows and, and to go back on our idea of advanced singles. I mean, I, I do believe big money might've been an advanced single. I think. Yeah, definitely was. Yeah. I think, yeah, we got that ahead of the album. Um, so, uh, and, and it was frankly, you know, not even really a heavy song, but it was one of the heavier songs on the album. Um, I thought in certain ways, um, but no, not, not happy with the direction at this point. <laughs> Now, is some of the, I don't want to say, I'm not saying blame, but maybe do you think some of the blame for that has to do with the producer, which, who they were very happy with, right? Pierre Collins, he, he was a, more of a pop producer. He kind of brought a sheen to things. Do you think it was something like that? Yeah, this weird idea of Peter Collins coming in. Like, so Peter Collins, number one, has great belief in himself, and, and he... And, and Rush like that. I mean, they, they, they have great belief in themselves as well, but they do like a producer with strong opinions. And that was what was very horrendous about dealing with Peter Henderson yeah. is that they felt he didn't have strong opinions. Um, but um, so he comes in with these strong opinions, but these strong opinions are in incredible bad taste because the things he loves are grating on the ears. Like they, 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 this English production stuff and these post-punk bands and all this pop, this English pop. And I don't know if he's producing things to sound good on radio, but I don't think it's in great taste what he loves. So it's almost like he's coming in with these strong opinions, but he has bad taste in music and he's imposing this bad <laughs> taste in music upon Rush who seem to be open vessels to new experiences and they'll just take his bad taste in music and run with it and give Peter back some bad music. The thing I found most interesting is that Peter said that all of Rush's previous albums sounded terrible and he didn't like the sound of Getty's voice and they hired him anyway. Yeah. So, so there you go. So, so Rush is liking this fresh opinion, but it just proves Peter's bad taste in music because everybody's favorite Rush albums of all time are the 70s stuff, which has proven over time to be to be the correct thing and the not dated thing. I mean, I mean, sure, it sounded dated and Neil's handlebar mustache and the long hair was maybe laughed at for a brief period. But now that's the most handsome Neil ever looked. Right. So so that's the whole thing. Right. This this stuff, it's come around. And we may all be proven wrong again. 20 years from now, the 80s stuff might be looked as the hippest thing they ever did, right? Um, but it never happened yet. I mean, it's we've, we've gone 30 years with that stuff not, not sounding dated and not sounding in bad taste. So basically, I, 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 you know, it's this, it's this harsh attitude that I also have to, to Mutt Lang ruining Def Leppard, so to speak, right? That stuff to me did not stand the test of time. I don't care how many records it sold. Um, but hearing Peter Collins say he didn't like the 70s stuff just proves his bad taste in music, I suppose. <laughs> well, Jerry and I became Rush fans in this year, 1986. So we, we love Power Windows. 
do you think if you just took power windows and hold your fire and wipe away the rest of what Rush did and just listen to those records, what's your opinion of them? If you don't compare them to what Rush did in the 70s and what Rush did later on. See, that's the thing. Fans of all bands, they have an entry point and that's what they love. And they're, you're of that era and that's the music that is important to you from that era because the music you love the most is from when you were 14 years old to 21 years old, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you will live with that forever. You will love those albums forever. And you will, and, and, you know, if you're into any mu- new music at all, which is, which is oftentimes doubtful, you're at least going to be into those people making new music throughout the rest of time, right? So that's the way all of us who get stuck in eras uh, <laughs> argue that we love new music because there's hundreds of albums we could love for me personally by guys that are 70 years old. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that are older than me that are making the records I love from the seventies. Right. So, so, okay. So, so the question was like, not even thinking of them as rush albums, what the heck would you even think of them as? Because they're not, they're not, 23 year old new waivers. So they're not coming at this even honestly at this point, they're coming at it as an older generation adopting new technology. So it's kind of weird. And they're, they're a prog band and a heavy metal band or whatever from the seventies doing this. So, so it's like they're, they're men, they're men out of time doing it. So, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a funny question because I would think at the time, if I remember correctly, Rush was probably not embraced by fans who were essentially coming of age at that time. They were probably already looked at as as old has-beens, as old men. Canadians to boot, right? They're from mm-hmm. the weird country, right? And and you know, with this weird, weird past. So um, you know, they were they were probably looked at, I would say, by some of the critics as jumping on bandwagons. Uh, with all this new technology and these uh, these funny sounding bass guitars and chimey guitars and the fix and all that stuff, right? Duran Duran and all that kind of thing. So um, I don't know. I, I would I would probably beg to say the records would not have been all that greatly received because they're because they're basically old Canadians. This <laughs> stuff, right? You know what's funny is uh, you were uh, I think we were both appeared on the Rush Roundtable discussion once from rush fans the instagram account i did one last night and there were two guys on it who were like in high school first year college or whatever and they love power windows they just love it i asked them why do you love power windows and they said that the song writing they felt was a lot better than on some of the earlier albums maybe not the production but they were concentrating on how the songs were constructed what do you think about that I don't believe any of that stuff. I never have, you know, all this stuff about even later on, Oh, we're working on our songwriting. This is a vocals album, all that kind of stuff. No, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Neil got any better than he would ever be in the, um, you know, certainly the late seventies into the early eighties. I think he was as good as he would ever get really. I mean, other than, other than, um, some of the beautiful, beautiful heartfelt things on vapor trails, but no, I, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, songwriting, see songwriting is a funny thing. It's, it's always, it's very arguable. It's a, it's a very abstract concept. What's a great song. What's the platonic ideal of great songs. I mean, people often say simplicity, leaving things out, blah, blah, blah. Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, Billy Joel, Tom Petty. Right. I mean, there's a, there's a whole pile of critics 
that would argue that that's great songwriting and forget Rush. It's just silly. I mean, and, and, you know, there, there could be, there could be also with Rush a little bit of a smarty pants attitude and the showiness of the lyrics or whatever. Um, you know, obviously they are, they are a prog band, so they're supposed to be showy in, in various departments, but uh, no, I, I would never say that. I mean, I, I, um, I think time has proven that classic rush is classic rush. And that is really the timeless stuff. And I don't think necessarily, I don't think these guys got particularly smarter or better at what they were doing in their mid thirties than they were in their mid twenties. So hold your fire for you is an absolute non-starter, right? Yeah, I would say same sort of thing, but even getting mellower and even less guitar-y. And, um, and yeah, I just, I just found that there was a, smarty pants aspect and, and, and trying to look young aspect. And, um, I don't know, again, this idea of, um, early adopters of technology often get burned because when you buy early technology early, it's super, super expensive. And it's also really rudimentary. So you're, you're working out all the bugs with it. So when, when you're, when you're an early adopter of anything, you, you like say, Hey, let's put syndromes all over our whole album, all over the place, you know? Um, so, um, you know, generally you will get burned by being, being super in too early on certain things. And you haven't, you haven't had time to sit back and, and realize, is that really a good sound to do? Is this really a good idea? Does it, does this really need technology or, or does this, or does this song need something a little more analog or whatever? Right. It's a little bit, it's a little bit, the corollary is when bands complain after the fact that um, they had to write the songs in the studio uh, rather than, you know, record songs for their next album that they actually road tested live for a bunch of times. right? Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a little bit that same thing. You're just going in and using this stuff and putting it down and you don't know if it's going to stand the test of time. And I, I really don't think that stuff stands the test of time. You know, in the book, there's a, you have a quote from Getty and Getty is talking about the, the pinnacles of Rush's career. And he says that those pinnacles are 2112 moving pictures and power windows. So those guys love that album. They feel like they did a really, really interesting thing with it. And Neil's even worse. I mean, Neil, Neil, um, you know, Neil will, will really talk about the, the, the later stuff and, and those albums. Like he always defended those records, right? Yep. Yeah. It's, it is funny, but so this is creative people and, you know, and, and all they're doing really when they do that stuff is they're kind of exposing their taste in music. Like this is what we like, right? This yeah. is the kind of music we like. So I, I guess they're basically saying they weren't metalheads right? In, in uh, to, to a certain degree. Um, but, you know, that Getty one in, in specifically, I mean, obviously he's talking about two of the most beloved Rush albums of all time. And one of them is 1976 and one of them is 1980. And the other one is still pretty old, 85. So I don't know where that quote came from or how, how old it is, but, you know, he had eight or nine albums he could have said after Power Windows and he didn't, right? So, yeah. So it's almost like he's, he's being pretty retro with that quote. <laughs> and Neil has been quoted as saying Rush didn't become Rush until moving pictures. So he's throwing away everything prior to moving pictures. What do you think of that? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Again, uh, again, it, it shows his taste in music and it possibly shows his bad taste in music. Right. Uh, in, in a certain respect as well. But uh, you know, and, and it also, 
possibly shows I've seen a lot of bands and I've interviewed a lot of bands and artists who become clouded by what our most successful music was and our most successful album and, and what made us big. So it's easy sometimes to think when you're on the inside that the album that was universally received was, was a great album, but it's kind of funny. He would say that, you know, you can see the transition of rush, but as I said earlier, I mean, I don't think that album is a lot different than permanent waves. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's ludicrous also because what we became rush then, but three records later, four records later, we were a totally different band. And then they were totally different two or three more times after that. So when did you not become Rush again? And did you ever become Rush again after that? That's right. Yeah. So Presto, 1989, we end the 80s with Presto. I was surprised to hear that Getty was not happy with this record, but Alex was. What are your thoughts on Presto, Martin? So strange. I mean, I, I don't like it very much either. Um, but, you know, I mean, the narrative out there is, is that... Um, Getty is entering his, oh, I'm becoming a vocalist stage, right? And and our songwriting is still getting even better. And there's less keyboards, which is weird because there's still, I, I still feel like there's keyboards on these records, right? This and Roll the Bones or whatever. Um, you know, Alex liking it. I bet I bet if you asked Alex today in 2020, he probably wouldn't have much good to say about it. I, I've seen I've seen him not say you know, too many great things about it. But again, it's a, it's a, it's an enigma. It's a conundrum. What are these guys' taste in music? I, I don't really know. I mean, it's obviously they love what they grew up with, which we notoriously got on the feedback album, which I thought were horrible choices that the fans did not want to hear um, because it goes right back to what they love, not what they, what their fans loved. Right. Just awful, awful song choices for that EP. But um but, you know, I'm sure if you ask these guys, they'd say the same things we would say. They, they would say, yeah, you know, they would, they would basically pick their favorite, most beloved artists of all times or probably bands from 1966 to 1972, right? But, um, yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I just wonder what their tastes in music are. And, and Alex, sometimes I think Alex just, you know, he'll just ponder something and, and throw something out there or whatever. But I, I have a feeling Alex would not be a big, a big supporter of Presto right now, if you ask him. So they had a new producer for Presto, also Rupert Hine. And the one thing that jumped out at me in the book is that Rupert thought Getty and Neil had too much input in Alex's guitar parts. And he made a point to take Alex aside and have him do his guitar parts without Getty and Neil around. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. And Rupert, again, who has is now deceased, right? He died recently. Um <clears throat> It's again another Peter Collins. It's a very strange choice, and it's a very interesting and creative choice. It's it's like Rush again, you know, clutching at creativity and fearlessness and looking for a whole different set of inputs to what they're doing. Just a just a, an obscure kind of guy to hire on as a producer, right? But I, you know, honestly, I listen back to those records. I mean, I, I basically consider. Power Windows right through Roll the Bones as a as a suite of four albums with with only Power Windows being slightly different because it just seems like a little more of a um it's it's as modern as all of those other ones but but it's a little more of a of a tough amalgam of a lower end mid-range guttural grinding synth and keys and bass whatever you want to call it mixed together with a fair bit of guitar you know very different record from grace under pressure but but it it, it just feels like the um the tough 
the the tough version of the version of Rush we got across those four albums. So, no, I I don't have much good to say about Presto. I mean, even 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 before you know coming on talking to you guys, I thought I, I thought I, I should play these records again if we're if we're going to talk about them again. And I just I did not see a lot of value in them. I just did not see a lot of stuff that I I wanted. It's just not my musical taste, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I suppose. If you if you grew up and you were climate acclimatized to that to to all of those sorts of production values and and keyboard sounds and chimey guitars and stuff and you liked it because your personal taste went that way fine but my my personal taste doesn't go that way so so your next book is Rush in the nineties and beyond right so as the decade of the eighties closes out. Just as we started with the headspace of Rush from the 70s to the 80s, what's their headspace going into the 90s? Well, as we've seen, they made zero changes, really. I mean, Roll the Bones is the same record as Presto in most philosophical ways. I suppose the the theme that you do see is that they're starting to stretch out and do other things and, and take more time between albums and probably tour less and just become more rounded human beings. I suppose that's the theme. Um and really, there's there's only somewhat of a reckoning when you get to counterparts, and uh, and they do kind of bring back the guitars, and it's a little darker, and they've they've soaked in some of the realities of um, what happened with the whole grunge explosion. I mean, you know, there's all the all this narrative that it's a little bit grungier of album. There's it's not a grungy album at all, other than again, advanced single, stick it out. But other than that, and and the way they dressed in the videos and things, but I think the transition is really between Roll the Bones and Counterparts. And then Tess for for Echoes in a weird space, but obviously a lot of bad stuff happens to the band in the 90s. They don't quite fit. I mean, the 90s... they're, they're, They're really long in the tooth at this point. They're They're more or less... I suppose you could say they're also kind of sidelined in the popular consciousness. They're already sidelined in the popular consciousness for the latter half of the eighties. I mean, they're, they don't really matter to, to a lot of the rock industry already by the late eighties. And they really are just kind of like, as the movie says the the world's biggest cult band, they're kind of a big cult band throughout all the nineties, what they do to survive even through the late eighties into the nineties, which is the same narrative is they keep having a massive show and they keep selling a lot of tickets every time they go out. But the records are, are kind of like not well received and they don't sell a lot. And they're just kind of a band operating in the background and everybody looks at them as like they've lost their way, but they're a good old rush and we're, we're kind of still into them. But, you know, obviously basically starting at the likes of, I would say grace under pressure, they become they become kind of a second tier in the background, you know, working man's band um, that's just out there doing their thing, trying new things, but they're not being well accepted. And that kind of continues uh, right through the 90s, I suppose. So, Martin, the new book is called Limelight Rush in the 80s. It's out this Tuesday, October 13th. When can we expect the book after that, Driven Rush in the 90s? Yeah, so it's called Driven, Rush in the 90s, and in quote marks, in the end. So that's a, a neat way to uh, recall the name of an old Rush song and, and cover the fact that it's actually covering uh, 90s. So 
25 years, not not quite 30 years, I suppose. Well, sort of in a way, it's covering 30 years, uh, unfortunately, with the death of Neil, right? So that one comes out April 2021. Okay. And that's the last one, obviously, you know, the shocking death of Neil, uh, which was a a huge surprise to everybody. basically you know obviously put puts the end to the thing but but yeah so that will be the end of the trilogy and uh yeah that's where we talk about a lot of uh a lot of personal turmoil with the band and um and some more records that are all very different from each other and uh and you know bringing back the guitars in a big way across a lot of those records well, we hope you'll join us again when the third book comes out and we really appreciate you joining us today martin martin popoff author of Limelight Rush in the 80s. Thanks for joining us on the Rush Fancast. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. So, Jared, that was a really, really surprising interview for me. It was. It was a roller coaster, wasn't it? It was a roller coaster. Martin, first of all, is fantastic. He is. But he really doesn't love 80s Rush at all. No. What gave you that idea, Steve? Yeah, he he doesn't he just doesn't like the direction. He doesn't like how they sound. He doesn't like the keyboards. He you know thinks Alex was sidelined on a lot of them, which is true. Well, he's a he's a heavy metal guy, right? Right. Yeah, and he doesn't cop to the idea that the songwriting got better. Which you know, I I can understand his point of view. If you think about you know some of their compositions in the seventies, maybe Power Windows compared to them may not be like the strongest songs, but I think the songwriting is still there. Yeah. Well, what I was trying to get at with Martin wasn't that rush doesn't exist and take power windows for what it is just to take each individual album separately and judge it on its own merits and not compare it to the rest of Rush's albums. I think maybe he misunderstood me a little bit there. I don't know. That would, that would be very hard to do. I don't think I could do that at all. Yeah. Well, that that's the thing. It's hard. It's hard to do that. I mean, it was a, Probably a dumb question to ask, I guess. There are no dumb questions. <laughs> but I think what it comes down to is Martin is a little bit older than us, and he grew up in the 70s, and the 70s rush is what he cut his teeth on. Right. That's the pocket for him. That's the pocket for him is what he said. And 80s rush is what we grew up on. And I think we're finding that everybody who grew up on 80s rush seems to like all rush. Right. Because if you if you're gonna if you like Power Windows and we love Power Windows, you're gonna love everything Rush did. Yeah, it would be interesting. I've never had a conversation with someone or heard from someone who only likes the eighties music. That would be interesting. Maybe there's a listener listening right now who's an eighties rush guy, hates the seventies stuff, hates the new stuff. I love power windows, hold your fire, presto, roll the bones. That's all I like. Okay. Yeah. If you are that person, let me know. I want to hear from you. Yes. We would like to hear from you. Email us, therushcast at gmail.com. Let us know. You can also find us on Twitter at RushFanCast, Instagram. We are The RushCast. The bass intro and outro, as always, done by our good pal Lex. And the quote given to us by our good pal Jerry. What you got, Jerry? I'm going to quote Presto. Okay. If I could wave my magic wand, I'd make everything all right. Oh, I thought you were going to say you'd make Martin, like, hold your fire. (laughs) I should (laughs) Okay, if I could wave my magic wand, I'd make Martin pop off like power windows. (laughs) 
That would be great. It would be. Take it easy. Bye.